yes, jetpacks aren't really something you can get at Target yet. And while there are those skateboards with the, they got the big wheels in the middle, you know, I think they're the closest thing we're probably gonna get to, to hoverboards. The point is, Marty McFly's future isn't quite what we were promised. Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. So on the one hand, in almost every conceivable measurement, life is better for most people, if only relatively and maybe momentarily, across the whole world. Why? Because air quality, nutrition, public health, medicine, vaccines, clean water, shelter, those things are still a nightmare for a lot of folks, especially folks in poverty. The risks, of course, aren't equitably distributed. And also, you know, we stand on the precipice of a very uncertain climate future during the mid to late stages of a pandemic we don't totally have a hold on. The point is, there's great news. Nearly all of the problems we've made for ourselves present opportunities for multi-solving. For example, fighting for cleaner air not only slows global heating, but straight up makes you healthier improves kids' test scores, and makes cities and towns more pleasurable to visit and live in. And the same goes for your home. For decades, Americans have relied on wood, oil, and gas to power, heat, and cool our homes, and the same for the water we use to drink and to get cool and to bathe in for those of us that bathe. But these things have also helped fuel the climate crisis. By some estimates, residential energy use accounts for about 20% U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. That's a lot. I mean, think about it. If my son pees on the toilet one out of every five times he goes to the bathroom, over time, it's just a lot. I mean, look, not to mention, burning wood inside and using gas stoves and fireplaces and water heaters, we now know is just straight up terrible for our health. Again, great news though. An electric future awaits us. And now, having passed the IRA, or IRA, there are a huge variety of rebates to help you electrify your home, to become less dependent on the grid, to save money over time, to breathe cleaner air inside and outside. But where do you start? It's a great question. And it's one I've been wrestling with myself recently. I want to make my home more reliable, more resilient, and healthier. And together with you and millions of other shit givers, I want to take a huge chunk out of U.S. emissions to slow the climate crisis. But in order to do so, I needed some help. So I called John Simohack, and he is my guest today. John is the co-owner with Neil Comparetto of the Comfort Squad LLC, a home performance contracting and consulting firm serving Charlottesville, Virginia and Richmond, Virginia. John's a pioneering practitioner of the Electrify Everything movement and is the self-declared Minister of Heat Pumps for the Southeast United States. And his company, the Comfort Squad, helps clients create healthy, comfortable homes that can run on clean electricity. So today we're going to take you on one of his standard performance assessments. It's really cool. And we're going to talk air conditioners and furnaces and heat pumps and water heaters and window units and electric car chargers and radiators and smart electric panels and induction stoves and sucking all the air out of my house. It's a whole thing. The point is, John is a tremendous, thoughtful, funny, helpful human. And I couldn't think of anyone better to help paint a picture for you of the healthier, all-electric American home. As a reminder, you can email me feedback or suggestions at quinn at importantnotimportant.com 
or you can send them on Twitter at Quinn Emmett or at ImportantNotImp, where I mostly tweet about injustice and being exhausted. Let's go talk to John. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Quinn. I'm so excited to do this after you so kindly took the time to go through my house, which clearly needs to be torn apart from bottom to top, considering your report today. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. It's good. I wouldn't go that far. That would be a climate disaster to tear it down and rebuild it. But there's uh, true. There's definitely uh, you know some good things to fix. Some great opportunities, as uh, as I like to call them. That's a great way of phrasing it and how I'm going to have to sell it to my wife. John, I do like to start with uh, one important question to set the tone for our conversation. Instead of, hey, what's your entire life story? How did you get to the place where you're sort of America's preeminent on the ground man for rebuilding every home in the the country? I like to ask, John, why are you vital to the survival of the species? And I encourage (laughs) you to be bold and honest because you're here for a reason. Oh, thanks. Um, Oh, vital. I guess my work, uh, you know, we're a small part of being a postcard from the future in terms of the homes that we work in and in terms of heat pumps, especially here in Virginia, where heat pumps are normal. It's Mm -hmm. not something that's uh, wild and out of the ordinary, and they kind of cost normal. So we're kind of giving everyone else who is new to heat pumps across the country, across North America, kind of a view into what that looks like and how they can can work and how they can operate and make for more comfortable, healthier homes that run on clean energy. Sounds good to me. I think we're done here. That's great. Virginia is interesting, you know, and obviously getting warmer. But we've got parts of the state, you know, closer to where you are and and out in the mountains or in Roanoke that are inherently a little colder and for longer. And we've got the beach and we've got where I am in between. But it's we get all four seasons. It's interesting. And when you get the arguments about like heat pumps don't work in the cold or, you know, people don't know that they also do air conditioning. It is an interesting test ground to say, like, look, for a lot of folks like this, this really makes a lot of sense. So anyways, we'll, we'll get into all that. Thank you for your answer. I appreciate it. Postcard from the future. (laughs) That's a good one. So folks and John, we talked about this a little bit offline. In light of going over my home and you letting me pester you with questions for four hours while you did that and then uh, this conversation. And in the meantime, uh, our good friend, the IRA, came out of nowhere, basically, or I will refer to it as IRA. And it is signed. It is is on its way. Uh, Not everything is active yet. There's more to come. We're going to give you all kinds of show notes and stuff, but mm-hmm. I want to approach this conversation as if we are implementing IRA step-by-step step throughout, obviously they vary enormously, but an American household by way of one of your, do you call it an inspection? What what should we call it? Home performance consultation. Performance consultation. So much yeah. better. So much yeah. better. Nobody wants an inspection or an audit or things like that. Last it? time I heard so, performance yeah. consultation, that was, uh, you know, when I was in the corporate world and it didn't usually end up great. <laughs> American households can vary enormously. I'm sure you've done the gamut, and I've lived in a bunch from ownership, renters, suburbia, farms, apartments, condos, and all this. But they're generally sectors, appliances, et cetera, that are applicable to most, and a lot of which are covered in some way by IRA. Absolutely. Yep. A lot of that will be distributed by the states, these rebates and things like that. But mm-hmm. even if it's not super clear to you folks by the end of this conversation, Do these subsidies apply to me? Yes or no? We're going to give you all sorts of tools. There's ways to figure it out. And those tools are honestly only going to get better and better because this is the direction. This is where we're going and it's going to be so comprehensive. So what I want to do is really try to bring this to life today. Nine billion just for the rebate programs, a 
hypothetically unlimited amount of money in the tax credits. There's no cap for the heat pump tax credits. And then there's, uh, I think it's going to be a real key uh, leverage point or catalyst is the $27 billion in the right. Green Bank loan program. So I think when you uh, when the states effectively combine the rebate programs that they're going to manage with a solid green bank program, uh, I think there's incredible opportunities there. Absolutely. I don't know where that number came from in my notes. I'm going to be honest there. But the point is, for folks, there's a lot of money. And like you said, the green bank's going to be incredible, especially for low-income households and local projects and things like that. But this applies to your range, your ovens, your cooktops, your heat pumps, your heat pump clothes dryers. Uh, water heaters, all mm -hmm. kinds of stuff. So again, these are nitty gritty details. I want to make clear again, folks, you don't have to memorize these things, but they're going to be available. And John, tear me apart wherever you can, like you just did, <laughs> to households making up to 150% of their local area median income, mm -hmm. which is a number calculated by the government, the Department of Housing and Urban Development every year. There's a tool you can figure out where you qualify in that. Yeah, there's a there's a map that you can click you can click on your local area and it'll Great. give you that number. Yeah. Yeah, you'll have a good idea of that. And obviously those things can change as well as well. And it's recalculated every year. The rebates can, I think, only be used once per household. Is that correct? I think that's correct. It sounds like best case scenario should be deducted by your retailer or contractor when you buy or install your appliance instead correct. of you having to file for a refund. Does mm -hmm. that sound correct? That's correct. Yeah, there's probably some paperwork in terms of income sure. qualification. Right. But yeah. Mm -hmm. So rebates apply to the cost of an appliance as well as the costs associated with installation, yes. which are big wins. Again, low-income households, so those making below 80% of their area median income, not average, are potentially eligible, it sounds like, to have 100% of their costs covered, while moderate income, essentially everyone else who's actually eligible, are potentially eligible for up to 50% of their costs covered. And I think the rebates, like you said, a potential unlimited amount of money, but the, each rebate themselves is capped at a specific dollar amount. Is that correct? As opposed to a percentage off? That's correct. Each uh, each appliance is capped mm -hmm. at a particular dollar amount. And then there's an overall cap for the entire project, which is for $14,000 on the, on the electrification rebate side of things. Okay. So that's mm -hmm. helpful. I mean, that's a huge amount of money for, yeah, for they can go, basically they can go everyone. Yeah. To break that down a little bit, this isn't comprehensive. And again, not all of this is live yet. Much of it isn't happening until next year. And the state's got to figure their shit out. Those eligible could get up to, I think it's 840 off cost of a induction cooktop or range, electric oven, electric heat pump clothes dryer, all these where they apply with Energy Star. Uh, for installation and electrical work, it looks like the rebates cover up to 500 for contractors. 1600 for insulation, air sealing, and ventilation, up to 2500 for upgrades to your electrical wiring. Don't skip that. And it says up to 4000 for an upgrade to your electric load service center. John, what is that? That's your electrical panel or your circuit breaker box okay. or your fuse box, depending on what you grew up calling it. Sure. Great. It's like one of those tests, like where are you from is what do yeah. you call like a Twizzlers, except for this will save the planet. Also, this is not just for suburbia folks. For landlords and renters, also applies uh, multifamily buildings where at least 50% of the residents are low or moderate income households, as well as folks living in U.S. territories, Puerto Rico, and two federally recognized uh, Indian tribes. All great. Even better. Yep. Again, yep. you don't have to remember any of this stuff. I certainly can't. John and I were talking about brain fog. I don't know. 
I haven't had COVID yet, I don't think, but I did have three decades of chlorine exposure and two years of rugby and three kids. So <laughs> who can know? All kinds of tools we're going to put in the show notes. Uh, DSIRE can check for policies near you both right now and later. Again, those will be implemented state by state. Biden administration today launched what they said, version one, cleanenergy.gov. And of course, our friends at Rewiring America are always on top of it. They have an amazing calculator to help you out with all this stuff. Yeah, really helpful. Here's what I do need you to remember, folks. Solar, geothermal, and battery rebates, John, are available now. But the most of the rest of these won't kick in until next year. Is that correct? So those will be tax credits, not rebates. Tax credits, okay. Uh, from those the federal rebates. government. So that is that is important. It's not a rebate. So Right, not point of sale. Unfortunately, you can only get that money if you have income tax liability. So if you, if you make enough money in the year in terms of income, then you can get that tax credit. The tax credit can be rolled over, I believe, uh, into the future, mm-hmm. all the way up until... 2032, 2033, something like that. So okay. if you don't have enough you know, tax liability right now, you might have that in the future. Um, so that's just something to, to remember. Awesome. And the one thing I didn't really plan to discuss today, though I guess it is part of the home, is EVs really. And those have changed a little bit because both there's some point of sale rebates now, but also they apply to used cars. And again, I know it is means tested to a varying degree, but that is part of the home because you're going to have to charge it. And that's where we're heading towards. Uh, if you have anything you want to add there at any point, then we can get into it. But I was more focused on the home itself. Right. Yeah. I think the thing to think about, especially with the electrical upgrades and the and the rebate money for those electrical upgrades, is thinking long term about mm-hmm. future EV charging for households that you know that have that have cars and have you know, either EVs now or EVs in their future. Um, Yeah, so uh, putting that infrastructure in place and packaging it together, getting the electrician to do all the work that needs to be done now and getting it funded in part through the rebates. Sure. And again, folks, this is all going to become much more commonplace, much easier. Installers are going to become much more familiar with all these things, if not supportive of them, finally, and more standardized and cheaper. But the point is, you've got some time to get your ducks in a row to figure out how and where you're going to go electric to find the right installers for you. Should you wait because more volume means prices will come down overall? Maybe. But at the same time, as we all know, appliances are backed up as it is. Installers are backed up as it is in a lot of places. There's a bit of a ticking clock with this whole electrify everything ASAP situation. Let's paint a picture for folks. So, John... And you can just use my house as an example if you'd like, but knock, knock, you're at my door. Welcome to my home. (laughs) Tell me, where do we start? How does this begin? Oh, sure. Um, I guess, yeah, let's, uh, we can start with just kind of a survey of what, you know, what you have in terms of uh, major equipment, how old it is, uh, what fuels are powering those devices. And then, you know, from from our standpoint, we're also not just thinking about electrification as you know, the only end goal that we're talking about, but we're also thinking about how to make a home healthier and more comfortable for everybody who lives there at the same time. So we're thinking about the comfort of the home, so the insulation, air tightness, window performance, shading, things like that, how heating and cooling is distributed through the different rooms, uh, in addition to the boxes themselves, the, the heat pumps and the cooking appliances and the water heaters and so on. So yeah, we can start, you know, we can start by just talking about what you have in your house. Okay. Maybe the biggest impacts that you can have are going to be on the 
heating and cooling systems from a climate standpoint. Okay. However, the from an indoor air quality standpoint, the biggest thing you can probably do is swap out your kitchen cooking if you have gas cooking right now. Okay. So where do you where do you want to start today, Quinn? That's a great question. So we're standing in the foyer, and I just want to be clear for myself, we're standing in my house. And for the people out there, your goal isn't just to walk around and go, your air conditioning's old, you should replace it with an electric one. It's to do a sort of comprehensive look at air leakage and all the different ways that, like you said, the larger climate can be affected, but also the comfort of my own home. And uh, as we discussed when we went through my actual house, we all have places that we sort of either cannot afford to change or we make excuses for, or every Mm -hmm. time we walk out of the room, we go, why the hell is that room so much colder than the other ones? And you're like, I don't know. There's probably no insulation back there. Or it's probably just more complicated than that, or it's probably more simple than that. But everyone's got places where they would like at least to improve the comfort of their own home. Exactly. And that stuff can be fixed. You don't have to live that way. Right. Sometimes it's really comes you know, in some houses it's really complex and mm-hmm. expensive to do mm-hmm. a real fix, but there are always ways to make improvements uh to, you know, to all of those rooms and, you know, get them closer to where you'd like them to be. Okay. So let's take a walk up. Let's go look at my my HVAC system and let's uh, assume I've got one unit for the home. So we go up and not unlike mine, it's whatever that was, 12, 13 years old, something like that. It's running, but I've got question marks every night when it's hot. You know, is this the night that my family cooks? <laughs> and, you know, I love my local installers are great. They're not big electric folks, but but they've been very helpful when when things go down. You come and have a look at what I've got. What is the standard, I guess, life expect expectancy for a basic HVAC unit, a heating and a cooling unit. For heat pumps and air conditioners, that's about 15 years is average lifespan. For furnaces, it's a little bit longer, I think closer to 20 years. So that's kind of the, and it's not always that something dies at that point, but that's when, when folks choose to replace it. Sometimes as an emergency, sometimes they do it in advance, but 15 to 20 years is that, is that general lifespan. And besides all of these incentives for me to do it, both comfort of my own home, saving some money overall because it's electric and and not gas or oil as some people still are mm-hmm. in the northeast or some other folks it's going to make my home more comfortable what how might i notice that my current system let's assume it's gas fired is on its way out if not tomorrow like you said if people are doing it preemptively why might they do that besides these new incentives that are out there what might they notice that makes them go, well, maybe it's time to actually do this. And now this is available to them. Oh, that's a good question. I think uh, a lot of times there aren't really uh, any big cues until something, a part fails or a significant part fails on the appliance. There definitely are cues that something is either incorrectly specified or commissioned uh, on a system such as uh, a common one in the wintertime with furnaces is that furnaces are significantly oversized. So the furnace will run for five or 10 minutes and then be off for 15 or 20 minutes and then run for five minutes and then be off. And it's kind of like stop and go traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's less efficient for the furnace and it's also less comfortable because your indoor temperature, your indoor comfort levels start going kind of up and down, up and down with those swings in temperature and that blast of heat that the furnace is putting out. Let me ask you this, because again, you know, let's assume the bulk of people, and I know heat pumps are more prominent than people think, but let's assume the bulk of people are are running off gas because of, you know, the way America has built our infrastructure in the past 25 years. 
you mentioned that being most commonly it's being oversized. And I remember, mm-hmm. I think I asked you this question and not to put anyone on the spot, not you, but the uh, uh, legacy installers, why would they sell me an oversized unit? Is that just measurement poorly executed or is there an incentive on their end to do that? Or is it people, consumers are nervous that it won't be enough? How does that usually work itself out? Why am I stuck with something that's bigger? Yeah, I think it's a combination of factors. One of them is that uh, in terms of furnaces, on those really, really cold days, those, you know, close to record temperature cold mm-hmm. days, uh, which, you know, in Charlottesville is like almost minus 10 sure. degrees Fahrenheit, sure. the installers are already incredibly busy doing emergency repairs for people whose equipment have failed. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to have to take a call from a customer whose furnace is only running at 65 degrees when they set it at 70. They don't want to take those nuisance nuisance calls. Mm. And so if they just bump up that heating capacity a little bit, then they know for sure that even on whatever the weather can throw at the house, that the furnace is going to be able to cover the load. Even if it's inefficiently doing so. Yeah. So what you wind up with is, you know, systems that can cover just about any conceivable load that the you know weather can give you, but it operates uh, uncomfortably or less than optimum comfort and efficiency. 99 point something percent of the hours of the 20 years that it's in operation. Wow. Good times. Yeah. So let's say mine is, again, I know mine was a heat pump, but imagine it wasn't 12 years old. You're like, look, it's not going to die tomorrow. I mean, shit happens, but we've got these rebates available to folks in the coming year. How would you then go, besides you've already convinced me to go with a heat pump, to go electric with this. How would you measure what's required for my space? Where would you start? Right. So we need to know the the peak heating loads and the peak cooling loads for that space so that we can select uh, appropriate equipment to recommend uh, and give you quotes for that equipment. So we need to know surface areas uh, where heat flows. So surface areas of walls and windows and doors and uh, roofs or ceilings and floors, as well as uh, insulation values to the best extent that we can assess Mm -hmm. them, given that some things are covered up by drywall and siding and whatnot. And then a very important measure is uh, to know the air leakage or the air tightness Mm -hmm. of a house. And we can actually measure that with uh, something that's called a blower door test. This thing's so cool, by the way. (laughs) So we use a fan to create an artificial pressure difference uh, between inside and outside. uh, And we measure the amount of air that's required in cubic feet per minute to maintain that pressure difference. And then we can compare that from uh, house to house. We can enter that number into our computer simulations that uh, help us estimate, okay, if your house has this much air leakage, that's going to equate to this much heat loss from air leakage on a very cold day Mm -hmm. or heat gain uh, in the summertime on a really hot day. So I'm going to get to how you measure, like you said, floor space and insulation, everything. I got to tell people about this blower door thing. So guys, they put this thing in the door and you think like, you just got a big fan like off my porch. What's it going to do? It's wild how this thing works. Remember, we had a contractor working upstairs who was punching a hole in the wall, in the exterior wall. And he said, 
Yeah, he said it was like a hurricane coming through that wall, the way this thing worked. You explained it to me so well there, and I remember taking notes, and I looked back at him, and I was like, nah, I don't get it. The fan starts going, tell me how it works, and tell me wh- exactly how you measure that. Sure. So uh, we have a, a hose that runs to the outside, mm-hmm. and then a, uh, another hose in the inside. Mm-hmm. And so those two are measuring the pressure difference between inside and outside. And then the fan is set up to send air out of the house. So we're blowing air out of the house. Every single cubic foot per minute, cubic feet per minute that we send out of the mm-hmm. house is replaced by air coming in. So air in equals air out. So if we send 10 out through the fan, mm-hmm. 10 is coming in from somewhere, from the outside, through the crawl space, mm-hmm. through the basement, through the attic, through the walls, through gaps around the doors, and it all adds up to 10. Uh, so in your case, it was a number much larger than 10. Well, we discovered I had a bit of an issue. And do you want to tell the people what that was? Because I had no idea. But when you say it, you're like, oh, shit, of course. Like, it's a huge hole that's there all the time. Right. Yeah. So you have a gas fireplace. Mm-hmm. And I believe the the way a lot of the building codes or regulations in different areas are for natural draft gas fireplaces like mm-hmm. yours. Uh, the flue, which is a manually operated flue, but there's you're required when you install these fireplaces, you're required to put in a limiter that doesn't allow the flue to close all the way. Because with a gas fire, you're not going to get the kind of smoke Potent, you know, smoke that you would get from a wood fire, sure. you may not notice if your uh, if your fire is actually not drafting up the flu. Mm-hmm. And so that's a life and death carbon monoxide 100%. issue if it's, you know, the building regulations are that you have to leave an opening. But that creates a huge hole year round in your house, huge air leakage uh, number uh, from that open flu. Right. So that makes a lot of sense. And again, you know, in the in the realm of control, what you can control I have no interest in carbon monoxide poisoning. I mean, it sounds like a lovely way to go if you're going to go, but I'm, I'm not interested in that yet. Come to me in a little while. But at the same time, I can't change regulations. I can't do anything like that. So obviously I do want it to remain, you know, partially open. Because like you said, there could be a leak somewhere. Same thing with hot water heater and, and your stove, whatever it might right, be. Right, right. So how do you then compensate for that as you're looking at the prospective unit you would recommend that I purchase? And you just go like, that's just part of their air leakage, right? It is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, so there's definitely some big room for for improvement. And uh, I think you know you have some plans for finishing off some mm-hmm. attic space where that particular unit lives right now. And that's another big opportunity for uh, air tightness and insulation improvements. So um, one of the things that we do when we do these heating and cooling load calculations is we'll, we'll do a calculation run with the house as is, and then we can do another run with some improvements. And we can do kind of compare A to B to C to D and kind of talk about, you know, the implications in terms of equipment sizing, for instance. And just to cover the last sort of measurement things you did besides the cool blower door, just talk to me real quick about besides some of the other I mean, you said it happens, but it was interesting. So, for instance, I have ducting running along my unfinished attic ceiling, which is going to catch a lot mm-hmm. of heat in the summer. I mean, it's so hot and very yep. cold in the winter. So you're kind of losing both. But you also, was it infrared used on the walls to check for insulation? Just kind of briefly, just tell me how you get the full picture. And then 
Lastly, smart thermostats and how important those are. Your walls, uh, you know, because it's an existing home, you're, you're, unless you happen to have a piece of drywall on your walls missing where we could see the insulation, we can't really see in there. Right. Um, but we can with a with an infrared camera or a thermal imaging camera. Uh, so I have one that's uh, a nice low cost one that attaches to my phone. So it uses the phone's camera and the uh, infrared technology at the same time. And I can scan the walls uh, as long as we have enough temperature difference between inside and outside and get a good idea of whether or not your walls are insulated, if they have some insulation or no insulation, or uh, perhaps if you have insulation, but you have big gaps mm -hmm. and missing insulation in different spots. It's like looking at Predator. It's very exciting. <laughs> it's, it is, yeah. It's the same life or death stakes here. Um, Okay, great. And then you were really excited because I've got Ecobees. Tell me why smart thermostats, not just going forward, but historically for your assessment are important. So I have to clarify it. It really, right now, in our opinion, it really is limited to Ecobee. Oh, okay. Uh, because they're- I, Shout out. I, I don't get, yeah, I don't get, unfortunately don't get paid by Ecobee to say that. <laughs> on big podcasts, but they're the only ones uh, in terms of kind of popular Wi-Fi or smart thermostats that give you full access to your historical data. So you can look at your uh, system runtimes in five minute intervals mm -hmm. going back as long as you have had the thermostat. And so that's what I did uh, with your thermostat. So you gave me access to it mm -hmm. and I went in and I could see on those uh, really hot days this summer how your system was performing and that it was just slightly losing ground, but not by much right. on those really hot days. Considering. And, and similarly, I could go back to the wintertime mm -hmm. and see with your furnace that uh, even though in your particular case, your furnace is not drastically oversized, mm -hmm. it's it's pretty much right about right on. So on those uh, on those very cold days, uh, which where you are is not that cold, um, but, no, no. you know, low 20. Yeah, we'll get some. I mean, with wind chill, it gets chilly, but we're not talking about the sure. northeast here. But yeah, your furnace was running for several hours in a row without any breaks. And that's a good indication of a right sized furnace. Okay. That's really helpful. Ecobee, if you'd like to sponsor the show, come on out. Big fan. All kidding aside, that's got to be so illustrative of you to look at like, oh, this is literally the day-to-day -day of... Absolutely. Yeah. There's nothing... I mean, we can do the computer simulations of the house mm -hmm. uh, based on you know the measurements that we take and what we think the insulation is, mm -hmm. but nothing beats kind of the real-world performance of the actual equipment that's installed right now right. in terms of looking at, okay, where are we right now and what systems are going to be appropriate going forward. And we'll get to this for sure as you tour our, our home here, but it reminds me of the push to, and I couldn't be more excited about really putting in smart electrical panels that help us really understand our load and our day-to-day -day of how it's being used, but also, again, future prepping them for charging all these new electrical appliances and also an EV and things like that in an intelligent way, maybe pulling from solar, maybe pulling from batteries, et cetera, et cetera. It's the great quote, right? You can't change what you don't measure. I don't know. Something like that. You yeah, get the point. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah, the smart electrical panels are I think there's some really cool, exciting things that we will be able to do. It's uh, it's everything's coming slower than practitioners like us um, would like to see, especially in terms of integrating all of this stuff with our utilities mm -hmm. and and being able to 
have a house that actually can be a contributor to the grid sure. on those really nasty days sure. instead of just being a drain. And then also getting paid a little bit for it sure. to help offset the, the cost. Sure. Should we focus on panels, which I kind of think is the brain of the house, or would you like to come back to those as we kind of go bit by bit? Let's jump over to panels because one of the things that we have to look at when we are changing from a, a furnace uh, and air conditioner like we're talking about mm -hmm. when we're switching over to a heat pump, the heat pump is going to use more electricity than the furnace and air conditioner do does in the wintertime. And it has different uh, just wiring requirements in terms of how it gets wired into the circuit breakers in the electrical panel. So that's something that we would have to take a look at is, you know, go down to your basement, look at the electrical panel, look at the current uh, service capacity in terms of amperage, mm -hmm. look to see what circuit breaker size and wire size mm -hmm. is currently being used for the furnace blower and for the air conditioner outdoor unit mm -hmm. that you have now. And then uh, see if some of that is reusable for the future heat pump system or if it needs to be upgraded. So in your case, we have the wiring for the air conditioner outdoor unit that can be reused. Okay. So we don't need any changes to the circuit, uh, the circuit breaker, or the wiring for the outdoor unit. For the indoor unit, which for heat pumps, that's called an air handler. Uh, that's the thing that moves the air through the ductwork um, uh, for your house. Uh, that requires a new uh, 240 volt circuit. So it's a, mm -hmm. it's a double mm -hmm. circuit breaker with two wires coming out of it, whereas your furnace currently is only using one wire, single pole, 120 volt circuit. So what we need to do is find an empty slot adjacent to the furnace or reconfigure some things to create two empty slots within the electrical panel. So we know we need to do that for the heat pump and we're going to do this kind of similar analysis for some of the other devices and then kind of and communicate that uh, and start talking with an electrician about all the, you know, the work that needs to be done to uh, make those upgrades. That's super helpful. And, and that's just to replace sort of like for like with electrical appliances and to right. sort of future proof these things to to really make your home more intelligent besides just the colorful light bulbs that my kids love and break all the time. It's building a real brain that cannot just tell you, oh, you're, when you run your clothes dryer, it uses this much, right? It's with these incentives that currently exist for solar and batteries, which have come down so much in price. I mean, batteries are still very expensive on the consumer level, but they've come down enormously. Solar's come down enormously. Um, with those, you can also look and see, of course, what power is coming in, how much you're pulling in, what's going to the batteries, what's going to the house. But like you said, on the nasty days, which California just went through and will continue to go through and more places will, you could potentially actually send energy back to the grid. And obviously that's been complicated in some states with net metering and things like that. But you could actually make some money from these things, but you've really got to have a pretty intelligent setup for this all to work for yourself and for the greater, either your microgrid locally or larger ones. Is that feel relatively on base? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So yeah, so there are some emerging products that are available now in the kind of smart uh, smart electrical panel world that can, in under different scenarios, whether there's a grid outage, whether you just want to reduce your load so that you can maximize how much you're sending off to uh, the grid, or if you have, uh, in some places, uh, solar net metering rules are starting to change or doesn't even exist mm -hmm. in some places, 
you want solar, but you don't get really paid for when you send solar out to the grid. So you want to maximize how much of your solar production you're using on site. So these uh, in kind of intelligent panel systems can in real time start to turn on devices mm -hmm. and match them up in real time with your solar production. Uh, so there's there's lots of cool options that are out there. I know there's one out there called that's pretty cool. There's also add-on devices mm -hmm. to current boxes if you're not ready there. Or and again, there's going to be so many more of these products. They're going to become cheaper yep. and more commonplace and easier yep. to install, more standardized. But also because it's really important that we always talk about mitigation, but also adaptation, which is, again, you can look at the West and all of their potential rolling blackout issues, but with storms or flooding or whatever it may be, people have hooked up generators to their home panels forever. Super loud, right. bunch of right. gas, they run, they break, mm -hmm. service them, this and that, but they're hardwired in. So you say when it's hooked up, and again, John, please correct me if I'm wrong, you say, my fridge and my AC and mom's CPAP machine. And that's... That's what you've got. That's what, that's all. And that's all you can do. You can't change you it. You can't change it. You can't manage it. You can't see how much it's taking out of your generator, this or this. With the smart panel with solar with batteries, again, not cheap right now. There's these 30% rebates, but you can change those on the fly, which is pretty cool. Exactly. So you can, through the apps, you can set up a off-grid or grid outage scenario mm -hmm. where if the grid goes down, the system automatically turns off all of the circuits except for, you know, these four critical circuits mm -hmm. that you've designated and switches over to the battery backup or solar plus the battery, depending on the time of day and how much sun there is. And then on the fly, yeah, as you like, you can start changing that around. You can say, okay, I have tons of solar available right now. I've got excess energy I'm producing, but the grid is still down. Let's go cook our dinner. Sure. Let's go cook our meal. Let's heat some water. Let's cool down our space mm -hmm. for a while, especially while if the battery is already full of energy. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're just, you know, kind of, you know, wasting that solar. Sure. And then once you're done with those tasks, you can turn those circuits off and just go back to the the your critical circuits that sure. you want to keep power, like your lights and your fridge and medical devices sure. and stuff like that. And those can run off the battery overnight. With that, you, you manage that well. You can have some pretty reasonably good comfort and kind of creature comforts and cooking all enabled for an extended period of time, as long as you've got some sun to give you that solar energy. That's the critical part. Otherwise, you're you, then you're limited to just the battery, sure. uh, which can still be, you know, if you manage it well, can still get you through several days of kind of minimal lighting and refrigeration and heat. Sure. And I feel like I'm going to do an entire episode about emergency kits, which I've been very down the road on having lived in Los Angeles for the past 15 years. And now I'm back in sort of hurricane territory. But this is an essential piece of your planning, folks, especially as we go forward, because these things are going to continue happening and they're going to become both less predictable, more frequent, more severe in a lot of places, wherever you may be. No one's going to avoid these things. We keep talking about batteries, but I do want to pivot uh, slightly to what I said we wouldn't cover too much, which is Arguably the easiest battery you can get, even though they're not easy to get right now, is if you've got a pretty smart home, is the battery in your car. And a lot of these right. newer models, and I expect it'll sort of become standard going forward, once they're plugged in, can send juice back into your house. And I know the Ford F-150, that's one of the big selling points, is they're like, it can power your house for three days. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, not everyone agrees with me on this, but I'm very excited about the opportunities around vehicle to home and then possibly vehicle to grid in some cases uh, where the energy is flowing into your home and then back out to the grid. But yeah, the um, you know Ford, uh, actually Nissan Leaf has been compatible with vehicle to home and vehicle to grid uh, forever. Uh, awesome. But in the US, we haven't had the uh, charging appliances, mm-hmm. the bi-directional uh, chargers uh, available uh, to actually do that, uh, except on like a you know, very special pilot sure. basis. Sure. But yeah, I think more and more so the um, when we think about with vehicles, the battery, the energy stored in the battery packs when they're full is much, much, much larger than what you would get with a, a home battery mm-hmm. from, uh, you know, Tesla or you know one of the other uh, battery makers, LG, Panasonic, uh, and so on. Just taking uh, whether it's to benefit the grid and get paid, or whether it's uh, you're in a grid outage situation, taking ten or twenty or even thirty percent of that battery pack is no big deal in most cases. Uh, to power your home and still leaves you with plenty of energy if you need to drive. Again, you know, when I think of, and you've got your Comfort Squad shirt on, comfort is not just our day-to-day because as these things change, as our world becomes more volatile in places and in very different places and in very different ways, that you've done the things you can do to make your own home, your community, your HOA, your apartment building, whatever it might be, your, your city, more resilient so that when these things happen, you are better prepared. And building this foundational layer, starting with your own home, not only is smart and can save you some money, but can make you more comfortable and just provide some peace of mind that we're lucky we're able to do these things. And again, now you can do it. So I'm excited to move onto the kitchen, but I want to back up for people again to help them understand some of the work we've talked about so far. Again, for the folks who qualify, you can get up to $1,600 for insulation, air sealing, ventilation, up to $2,500 for upgrades to your electric wiring, and up to 4000 for an upgrade to your electrical load service center, which you described as sort of that that whole brain operation. So we're mm-hmm. not just saying go do these things, but this specifically is why we're sort of touring the house to understand where all these things apply. Yeah, exactly. I think the most important thing is to start developing a plan of action mm-hmm. for your home so that you don't get caught in an emergency situation. That's really where all of these things start to fall down uh, in terms of making these electrification replacements, especially. If your furnace breaks in January, it's going to take a little extra time to switch to a heat pump if you have to bring in an electrician to do some additional wiring to get that heat pump installed. So if that means an extra week or two weeks, or if the electricians are all busy doing other work, that's a real problem when it's really cold out. And that's one of the reasons why so many furnaces get replaced with gas furnaces is because that's the easy, quick thing to do when it's an emergency or semi-emergency standpoint. So planning it out and doing that replacement when your equipment is, you know, getting towards the end of life, but maybe isn't quite there. That's that's the best time to do it. Unless you have, you know, lots of financial resources, then you should just go ahead and do it. <laughs> Right, right. So let's move. <laughs> but for for most for most people for you know for most homeowners for the apartment building owners who are really looking at the monthly dollars and cents and are not interested in really replacing replacing stuff early, it's going to be having a good plan and replacing things uh, when they're close to their end of life. 
Right. And for some people that could be uh, today, for some people that could be once a lot of these uh, rebates and and tax incentives uh, kick off. But again, there's just going to be more and more resources. Again, we'll put them all in there. But for uh, in the Northeast, look at what Don Albard and uh, Block Power are doing in cities. It's really, really, really cool. So let's move into the kitchen. You step into the kitchen. What's the first thing you're looking at? Assume sort of standardized. I've got all my stuff. Let's say I got everything in my kitchen 14 years ago. Go for it. Okay, so if it's standard stuff, then you've got a you have a gas range that has uh, an electric oven, probably. Okay. So a range is this all-in-one appliance where the oven and the cooktop are this single appliance mm-hmm. that kind of just slides in. Mm-hmm. If you're cooking with gas, then you know what we, we would be proposing is an electric range to replace it. Ideally, an electric induction mm-hmm. range. So that means it uses uh, electric induction technology for the cooktop. Mm-hmm. And again, I just want to emphasize to people, it's it's not very early with these things. It is early with these things. They've gotten a lot better. They're going to get better, more providers, cheaper, more reliable. But induction cooking is so cool. Related to heat pumps, you know, we're, we're trying to be that postcard from the future. Sure. So Europe is the postcard from the future, especially in terms of induction cooking and Asia as well. Maybe the whole world. The U.S. is just way, way behind. Induction's been around since the 80s. Watch any episode of Great British Bake Off. They're in the tent. It's 100 <laughs> yeah. degrees, literally climate yeah. change in there. Watch an episode from 12 years ago, and they're on induction cooking cooktop. Induction. Baking, right. yep. which, by the way, you fuck it up by one degree, your cake's shot. That's why they use induction is because right. the temperature it's control so exact. is so precise. You can get it so, and you can get things so low. Uh, so right. yeah, if you do really fine chocolate, sure. sweets making, things like that, and induction is the best for that. But yeah, I've had my induction cooktop since since 2008. Oh, uh, so and we had limited options back then in the US. Now all of the big appliance makers have uh, standalone cooktops. Mm-hmm. They have slide-in ranges. They have drop-in ranges, different sizes. They don't have everything for every application, sure. but for most households, there's something that's going to be a drop-in replacement for what you have now uh, with the with the addition that you have to get the wiring to it. Sure. And and again, there's incentives for that. And for this one, yes. again, those yes. eligible could get up to, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, 840 off the cost of an electric or induction range or cooktop electric oven, or I think it closed dryer goes in there too, but we'll, we'll get back to that. Postcard from the future. It's all amazing. Let's take a moment because over the past year or so, some really awesome folks have done a lot of research into, holy shit, gas stoves are really not great for indoor air quality. Do you want to speak to that for a moment? I can get into it. It's up to you. Yeah. I mean, I can give you the basics. Sure. Uh, I mean, so one of the interesting things is that, you know, your gas cooktop and your gas oven, if you have a gas oven, it's the only appliance in your house that isn't required by law to be vented to the outside, which is wild. Everything else has a flue that goes to a chimney and the combustion gas. We just talked about my flue. Safe. I'm not allowed to close it. No, you're not allowed to close it. Your furnace has a flue. All that, all those gases from the combustion process, mm-hmm. they go to a flue and they go up through your roof and to the outside. Same with your water heater, uh, because it's not safe to breathe that stuff. They're all serious pollutants. Uh, particulates, nitrogen oxides, sulfur oxides, other nasty stuff. But it's free game in your kitchen where five people are crowded around. In terms of indoor pollutant generation, cooking in the kitchen is the number one source of indoor generated pollutants. Uh, If you cook with gas, it's significantly worse. 
than uh, cooking with electric. So just to interrupt real quick, because I was an asthma kid. I went to, mm -hmm. I was very, very lucky and privileged. My parents had great health insurance. I had 20 ambulance rides, emergency rooms, bad news stuff. This is part of the reason why this pisses me off and, and how much we've identified what the gas lobby, uh, SoCal Gas, some of these places have done to get in the way of electrification of the kitchen. From last year, just pulled it back up from my, my I have like a, just an, Billy Madison type anger list of, of stats that make me frustrated, but uh, mm -hmm. reading it, a meta-analysis of 41 studies showed that children living in homes with gas stoves have a 42% increased risk of experiencing asthma symptoms and a 24% increased risk of ever being diagnosed by with asthma by a doctor over their lifetime. It's not fun to not be able to breathe. And again, yeah. I was very lucky to be able to take care of, I was on five different inhalers and pills and this and that. It's awful. So many low-income kids, black kids all over Los Angeles, this is the deal. And they're in apartments where they never could imagine replacing these because they're not in charge of them or they can't afford to change them. And so CalGas has, again, I, I will put it all over the show notes, everything they can to keep you from changing those things. So this one is actually, besides induction, super cool and we can cook all this amazing chocolate and I'm going to. If we're talking about comfort and health, like this is the thing for me. Absolutely, yeah. It's a yeah. It's a it's a really big, uh, potentially big health impact, especially if you have kids or older folks. My mother-in-law's a asthmatic nightmare, and I'm just like, she moved to a new house. I said, I'm taking that stove out tomorrow. Yeah, or if you're a regular, you know, middle-aged adult like us, and you you know have any kind of breathing problem, I mean, it's it's not good for anybody. Sure, it's worse for, but it's you know, it's much worse for for certain and folks. Also, we're in the middle of a cardiorespiratory plague. To exactly. Be yeah. This is what I think is great is that for the vast majority of home cooks, cooking on an electric induction cooktop is better than gas. Mm -hmm. It's better. It's significantly better. Uh, it's safer. It's faster to heat things up, finer tune control. It's easier to clean. So whether you're the cook or whether you're the one doing dishes, yeah, uh, it's better. Yeah. If you have many small children like me who constantly just want plain pasta, a pot of water will boil so fast. It's magic. And it feels that way. And this is the way mm -hmm. it should be. And again, everywhere else has been doing it forever, but it's the way forward. So you recommend we replace this with whether your range is uh, 30 or 30 per six, whatever it might be, more and more coming. Right. Again, we'll put consumer reports reviews out there for folks. Are you looking at anything else in the kitchen besides the oven and the stovetop or, or the range? Yes. So for us, we would also be looking at the range hood exhaust if you have a range hood. Okay. Uh, so even with, uh, even with electric cooking, electric induction cooking, and definitely with gas, it's still recommended to exhaust your pollutants mm -hmm. that you're creating while you're cooking. Mm -hmm. The big ones, if even if you're just cooking with electric, you still are generating some pretty heavy particulates that are not good to breathe. So if you can just suck them out right from the cooktop with a range hood, that's the best case. So if you have a range hood already in the house and you're planning on keeping it, that's something that we would test. We'd actually turn it on, go out and measure the airflow, mm -hmm. make sure it was doing a good job. If you don't have one, then we would start to think about, okay, okay, how can we retrofit a range hood into a home? That's something that we did recently for a client here in Charlottesville. Okay, awesome. That's great. My kitchen's upgraded. I've got some incentives for that if I qualify. It's healthier. It's better cooking. Everybody wins. Yes. Should we take a walk to my washer dryer or where would you like to go next? Let's go to your water heater next. From an energy impact and a, and a climate impact, that's a big one. So I want to talk about sort of my little journey, which I explained to you and how 
at the time I did what I did, but now it's time to, to change again. So I had old school water heater, it was great. Living in California, my mom is there. I mean, those things are massive. It explodes, whole basement's trash because it's an enormous amount of water. And I said, you know what? I'm not having water in my basement anymore. I'm done. So I put a tankless one outside. It is such a huge pain in the ass. Also, it's gas. So tell me about the future. What are you looking at? So the future is electric, of course, because yeah. we're we're trying to get everything to run on uh, on clean energy, mm -hmm. and with our current technology, that means we're running on electricity. Mm -hmm. So it's electric. It is um, most likely uh, has some kind of storage tank for okay. hot water because what that means is that you can heat things up in batches. You don't need a giant blast of electricity to heat things up instantly. That's a real problem for your electrical panel sure. in terms of your wire sizing. That can also be a problem for your just your neighborhood grid, not even in and on and the bigger grid. And just to help people picture it, and again as we're talking about sort of like for like for these things, like we said, replacing induction will look different. It's just a, a blank thing, but it fits in your current space. Water heater, mm -hmm. these are big things. From what I can tell, and I don't have one yet, it seems to fit into the same source space. I just think how people, you know, they've always got a little closet or it's in the garage or something. I think, yeah, most households have a tank style water heater already. Yeah. But the new electric one would fit into the same sort of area. Yes. Okay. Most of the time. Now, so there's standard electric ones mm -hmm. that are less efficient mm -hmm. and a little bit lower cost. And then there are also heat pump water heaters, uh, which are uh, usually a little bit taller. Okay. Uh, if it's a packaged heat pump water heater. Okay. Uh, those are much more energy efficient. From a kind of energy cost and return on investment standpoint, it depends on where you are. But in in uh, where we are in Central Virginia, the math is kind of um, if you're a three-person household and higher, then you're probably better off with the heat pump water heater, okay? Because you'll you'll get that savings over you know just a, a few years. If you're a two-person household or smaller then a standard electric water heater might be better. Now, of course, that math changes a little bit with the rebate money. And I don't actually have that one in my notes. What is the rebate for this if you qualify? 1750 is the maximum rebate. Okay. So if you're at that 80% AMI threshold, it's 1750 and it's half of that if you're over And that I threshold. don't really have a reference point because I haven't, besides when I very quickly just ordered the tankless, 1750, what is a typical total cost? Let's say we're getting the more efficient one. So yeah, heat pump water heater, that's going that varies uh depending on where you are in the country mm -hmm. and kind of what your labor you know, local labor market and so on. Sure. Uh installed cost is going to probably be thirty five hundred up to ten thousand dollars. Oh Jesus. Depending on where you are. And it also depends on uh what size tank you're getting. So okay. the fifty gallon models are the most popular by far. And are the lowest cost, you know, from the wholesale shop mm -hmm. or from the from the big box hardware store or the retailer. And then there's usually a 65 gallon model and then an 80 gallon model, and those are significantly more because uh, of the the bigger tank. Sure, and they just don't produce as many of them. And the wiring to get that baby hooked up that's going to be included with the previous rebates talked about, or does that come off of this specific one? I mean, that can be rolled into your electrical upgrade okay. rebate package. Okay. So yeah. To the extent that you can plan all of these electrical upgrades all at once mm -hmm. and do that electrical work all at once and get, you know, and really max out the rebate. Uh, and it also, the electrician's going to give you a better price for doing five things all at once rather than just doing one thing five different times over the next 10 years. And now talk to me about comfort. Why is this heat pump water heater better? The heat pump water heater is better if you already have a tank 
and you're putting in a heat pump water heater that's a tank, it's going to be a similar experience okay. as long as it's sized properly. So you just have a tank of standing water mm -hmm. and you just draw from that as needed. And then as the tank temperature drops, then the heat pump will come on and replenish the heat in the tank. So it's mostly about uh, energy savings mm -hmm. and the ability to kind of shift when that energy is used okay. to different times of the day. Now, how, how new is that category? Is that something else heat pump water heaters that the rest of the world has been doing as well? Like uh, how far about... How far behind are, are we, or are these uh, new innovations? Yeah, we have a slide that my colleague Ben Knopp found, uh, put together. Uh, I think the earliest U.S. heat pump water heaters from 1976. So they've come and gone a couple of times. Sure. So we built our house in 2008 and then installed the first of the kind of new generations of heat pump water heaters in 2010. Wow. So they've been out on the market for a dozen years in kind of uh, the kind of newer generations. Now, most of the manufacturers from that 2010 time period, they're on their fourth or fifth complete revision of the model. So they've improved quite a bit okay. for the most part. They do have a compressor and a fan. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is more noise than a standard electric uh, water heater. They're slower to recover. So it's important to get the tank size right. Mm -hmm. Although most of them do have an elect a standard electric boost. Okay. So if the tank temperature drops too much, it'll kick in that boost. The boost is less efficient. So sure. it's a bit of a trade-off between speed of recovery and uh, an energy use. Sure. Right. Got a bunch of house guests. Noted. So I want to pause for a second because I imagine at some point folks are going, great, my electrical bill is going to go up a lot unless I'm really relying on solar and batteries almost exclusively, if not exclusively, for the people who can cover their roof or pay for that whole thing, whatever it might be. Where are the trade-offs on that front by cutting down on gas? That difference is going to vary a lot depending sure. on where you are in the country. Sure. So yes, you know, as we switch, as we uh, you know, electrify everything, add these you know electrical appliances to homes, replace the gas or the propane or the heating oil, the electrical energy use and the energy costs are going to go up, and the fossil energy use and energy costs are going to go down. Where we are in Central Virginia. Our clients are generally coming out ahead, mm -hmm. uh, even before talking about solar. Really? So, and before we're talking about EVs. Wow. So just from heat pumps, heat pump water heaters, mm -hmm. uh, and induction cooking coming out, typically for like a family of four, family of five, three, four hundred dollars ahead based on our local electricity costs and local fossil gas costs per year. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So it's not it's not an enormous windfall. Hey, man, there's a recession out the window. That's going to vary, again, depending on where you are. There's some parts of the country where electricity prices are much, much more expensive mm -hmm. and gas prices are uh, haven't gone up nearly as much. Sure. Uh, so you kind of have to, this is what we do for clients day to day is kind of do that analysis. So find, you need to find somebody who's kind of like us, uh, unless you're, you know, the number crunching geek and, uh, and want to do that math yourself. Sure. All kinds of calculators and, and nerds out there that can help you too, folks. The other thing, again, to take a step back into the more macro situation of step down from climate change to how are we going to power the U.S. more robustly in a more resilient way, in a more reliable way with solar. The sun's not out all the time or wind, the wind doesn't blow all the time and batteries and this or this, or the people who, you know, there's a huge host of 
different surveys and research about, okay, if we're going to do the whole country in solar, like how much land space would it take up? And some people are like, well, it's Kentucky and Tennessee and this, right? And you're like, I mean, in some ways others, but it's also important to look at, and this is a huge part of dealing with the climate crisis and food and water, all the things we cover here is land use, which is in many cities, there are eight parking spots for every one person. And we have so many commercial rooftops from big box stores, but we also have your rooftop. And I'm not going to sneeze at how expensive some of these solar installations are. It's come down quite a lot. And I remember quoting mm -hmm. it out in Los Angeles for my relatively small home that I was lucky to have and all, and all that, but uh, this was 10 years ago and it was not cheap, but I was like, oh, I should probably do the right thing. And wouldn't this be fun? It's so much cheaper now. It's still expensive, but you've got this 30% rebate already, plus batteries. And I think now going forward, it's also for batteries alone. You don't have to get them together, perhaps. That's correct. And there's more and more financing options as well. But also, this is going to save you often money along the line, right? So we're talking about how expensive electricity is in different parts of the country. If you can find a way to afford to install your own, you're less, and this is again something we talk about all the time here, is externalities and what you're exposed to. You're less exposed to that. You're going to be less exposed to a gas line breaking somewhere in your neighborhood or on your street or whatever it you're might be. You're going to be less exposed to foreign wars right. that are driving up gas prices. 100%. What an asshole. There's just more ways to build a primary layer of resiliency and comfort and reliability, but also redundancies should anything happen, because shit clearly happens. So mm -hmm. there's going to be upfront costs. What Ira is trying to do is really chip away at that for a lot of the folks who really need it more than anything. And again, like you were saying, the $27 billion to the Green Bank is going to honestly fund projects that we couldn't even imagine and the buildup and momentum behind those. But the goal with all of this is to really help you build a home and a neighborhood, an apartment and a city that is more resilient and robust and ready to, on the day-to-day, -day, make you more comfortable, save you money, but also be more resilient for what's coming. And again, just put out less shit into the air, less emissions, less messing, right, less right. carbon dioxide. So For the homes or buildings that either you don't have the financing to be able to put solar on your rooftop mm -hmm. or you don't own your own rooftop or it's just sure. a terrible site in sure. terms of getting sun to hit the rooftop, there are more and more and more community solar options yeah. where you can still buy into a somewhat local, sometimes very local mm -hmm. uh, community solar project where you own essentially a share or you buy a portion of the, of the power that's produced and you come out ahead on your electricity bill compared to business as usual. Uh, we have some great new programs just coming online here in Virginia in partnership with some affordable housing providers. I love it. What else do we have to cover in the house? What else am I missing? Probably the clothes dryer, mm -hmm. especially if you're in California. There's so many gas clothes dryers in California. They're pretty rare here in Virginia. Okay. But in some parts of the country, gas clothes dryers are really commonplace. That would be a big one. So switching over to uh, an electric clothes dryer, mm -hmm. there's standard electric ex exhaust clothes dryers. Or if you want to go with the uh, more energy efficient upgrade, then you would look at a heat pump clothes dryer, okay. uh, which uses a heat pump circuit to uh, warm the air up inside the drum and then cool it down and condense the water vapor into liquid water. So it's sucking out the moisture that way. 
So it's kind of evaporating it into the air and then condensing it out instead of just exhausting all of the air to the outside. So it's ductless. You don't need a duct yeah. to hook up to. If you have a duct already to the outside, that can be sealed up. Literally, that contractor that day was punching a new duct in my wall, and now I'm like, son of a <laughs> right. bitch. Just got the so the, the, the heat pump clothes dryers are quite energy efficient compared to standard gas and standard electric. And do they do as good of a job? They do take longer. So it's a little okay. bit longer cycle. Yeah, there's no okay. there's no uh, thermodynamic free lunch, as uh, <laughs> some of my mentors like to say. I think we just found the, the headline for the episode. Right. Um, uh, Awesome. But okay. so, uh, so my clothes dryer, for instance, you know, might run like a, an hour 30 or an hour 40 mm-hmm. for a typical cycle instead of like 60 minutes. Okay. I'm going to forget it's in there regardless and find it a day later. So it doesn't actually really matter on my end. It's me going just like, where are my socks? Some households really do have a laundry day and they've got seven sure. people in one laundry day and they have to do 10 loads on that single day. And it doesn't stop with my children. It's just the fact of like, (laughs) I want my, I need my socks. Are there any other tests? EV chargers we can maybe just touch on, especially when you're thinking about the other electrical upgrades. Yeah. Making sure uh, you're planning for that EV charging upgrade. Sure. Some houses that have older wiring, older electrical panels, might have a 100 amp service Mm -hmm. or maybe even a smaller service, maybe Mm -hmm. even only a 60 amp service or something like that, especially if it's a, if it's a small home. And so once you start adding all of these new electrical devices, there are calculations that you have to do to make sure that you're not overloading your existing service. Mm -hmm. And there's different ways to do the calculations that are approved by the building codes. Mm -hmm. But it's important to do them accurately instead of just kind of throwing a dart at a dartboard and getting Mm -hmm. a random number. Electricians will tend to be like the HVAC salesperson with the furnaces. They're going to tend to oversize everything so that it's easier for them in terms of just making that sale and uh, not having to worry, like just having a huge service size where there's absolutely positively 300%, you know, extra safety factor, no worry about fire. Right. And you just don't need that kind of safety factor. Plan for the EV, but we don't need to be planning to charge a garbage truck here. Exactly. Right. So there's calculations that you can do. Energy monitoring is also your friend. There Mm -hmm. are ways that you can use energy monitoring from your historical usage Mm -hmm. to justify keeping your existing service or, say, limiting your upgrade to 200 amps rather than going all the way to 400 amps. And that can be a big deal. And this is also where some of the um, the smart electrical panels can really help, where I think in the future, right now, you can already do this with EV chargers, but you can say, okay, I'm going to add an EV charger, but when I do the calculation, the calculation says I should go up to 200 amp service. But if you have a smart electrical panel that can limit your usage Mm -hmm. to no more than that 100 amps, Mm -hmm. then you're allowed to add that EV charger without upgrading the overall service. Oh, interesting. You would upgrade to that smart panel instead. So it's kind of a way, you know, and I don't know if it's a one-to-one trade-off in terms of cost, but it's a way to kind of take some of the cost, you know, take it away from an unnecessarily unnecessary uh, wiring and panel upgrade and putting into something that's going to be more useful and practical down the road. 
Sure. And again, you know, it's understandable from the past couple of years, you've thought, well, I'm never going to get a Tesla. Look, California has said, you know, this is what we're doing. And there's a whole bunch of states that are that we're already legally yeah. obligated to and, follow in yeah. their footsteps. Including us here in Virginia. Yeah, including yeah. Virginia. Boy, the governor's not happy about that. It makes me, it brings <laughs> me so much joy. This is the way this is going. Fewer cars overall, please, better. If you can walk, if you can make things, uh, you know, more people working from home, this and that. But cars are always going to be a part of of this country, uh, large parts of this country. So plan to accommodate the EV in some way. And again, look at those benefits of you're putting fewer emissions into the air. It's a cleaner car uh, for your family. You don't have to go to a gas station. You charge at home. It's amazing. Also, again, in times of emergency, if we build this house, rebuild this house correctly, like $60 million man, whatever it was, you can take the energy from your car in emergency and put it into your Wi-Fi in your fridge and any medical devices you might need, whatever it might be. The whole point is it's an ecosystem that relies and depends and supports each other. So I don't want to keep you forever here, but I feel like we've touched a lot of things. Any other tests you're going to run besides appliances? I know you went under the house. You thought about stuff like that, window leakage, anything like that. What else have I missed that people would experience when they ask for this sort of thing? Ductwork is a big one. A lot of homes are going to have ductwork. I think mine's a nightmare. I think that's what you wrote in the report, right? A nightmare? Yeah, it's pretty close to nightmare. Yeah, it's not the worst <laughs> I've seen. Yeah, our recommendation and for you is to is to replace that ductwork um, at some point down the road. Yeah. It doesn't have to be immediately. I think we can do a heat pump replacement now mm-hmm. and then think strategically in the future about when to replace sure. the ductwork. But in general, maybe don't strap your ducts to the top of a uninsulated ceiling that's facing the sky with like full sun coverage is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good Attach your ductwork to a 140 degree roof. If it's a room you wouldn't go in during the summer, don't think your ducts are going to want to be there either. Ductwork belongs in bases that you would want to be in. Mm-hmm. That's where ductwork belongs. Great. Good talk. Because then you don't have to worry as much about leakage in the ductwork. Sure. Uh, and you don't have to worry as much about heat losses and heat gains during those uh, during the extremes. And, and to be fair to most folks, I mean, they're going to have, everyone's got ductwork in a bunch of different places. And again, in, in apartments and condos and things like that, it's obviously more complicated. Mine are, the bulk of mine for this, what we're saying, are actually completely exposed. They're in an unfinished attic. For a lot of folks, mm-hmm. they might not be able to affect their ductwork because it's actually in condition and it's built into walls or ceilings or whatever it might be. Right. Yep. But it also means it might just be in better condition. I know I had other issues too, but that seems to be my primary one. Yeah, that's true. So uh, for folks who have uh, forced air heating or forced air heating and cooling who are in colder places, they're much more likely to have ductwork that is already in condition space. So it's in between their floors or it's in mm-hmm. their walls, it's in their basement. And so there's uh, less heat loss and heat gain. As you move to warmer places with uh, newer construction, you see a lot more ductwork that's installed mm-hmm. in unconditioned crawl spaces, mm-hmm. in unconditioned attics. So yeah, so that's uh, most of the most of the newer housing we've built over the last 30 years is in those parts of the country, unfortunately, in the in the West, in the Southwest and sure. Southeast. Sure. Uh, and so we have lots and lots and lots of uh, ductwork in places, bad ductwork in bad places. So again, lots of opportunities though. There it is. That's the spirit. Uh, I need you just like on my ear in the morning going like, it's not all bad. 
So I don't want to keep you too long. I have a few other last questions and anything else you want to cover, but I wonder about two particular questions I have for you. One is much broader than the other, but another one is Virginia specific. And and I've mentioned this before, and I think there's probably a number of people with this issue, certainly not a lot, but I know the Northeast has it as well, which is buddy mine, Southwest Virginia sent this to me. And I was immediately like, clearly you not paying attention. Like this is not my job, but I can point you to the right place. I would love to hear your thoughts on an environmentally sound and economically viable approach to replacing heating oil boiler. Is that as straightforward as it seems with a heat pump? Like, how does that process work in our new age going forward here? Yeah, so in the U.S., it is challenging still, and it's challenging for a few different reasons. One is that air-to-water heat pumps, which is what you would need for an existing home Mm -hmm. with a boiler and radiators, or in the rare case, maybe a boiler and in-floor heat, Um, you need an air-to-water heat pump. So something that takes heat from the outside air and puts it into water inside your house and then circulates that warm or hot water to the radiators Hmm. to make heat, just like your boiler does. Your boiler makes hot water and then circulates it to the radiators. So there's a limited number of manufacturers and products available in the U.S. right now for air-to-water heat pumps. In Europe, where radiator heating is commonplace, Lots of air-to-water heat pump choices and more and more and more coming online. So we have limited products that are available. Secondly, in the U.S., most of our radiators are too small. And they require, essentially, they require really hot water because the radiators are so small to get enough heat out of that radiator into the room. And there are even fewer heat pumps that can hit those really hot water temperatures. Sure. So for a lot of homes, if you want to keep hot water radiator heat, you might have to do a radiator replacement for some or for all of the rooms in order to switch to an air-to-water heat pump. So it's all of this is possible with mm-hmm. current technology. The radiator technology is no big deal. There's European radiator companies that have you know these larger heat exchange areas. Mm-hmm. So they have rows of fins. Instead of just one row of fins, they'll have two rows or even three rows. Mm-hmm. So you just get a lot more heat transfer And you're able to use lower water temperatures, which makes for a much more efficient uh, heat pump system. And is there any sort of rebates for any of these things or are these not covered? Depending on how the states set up their programs, I don't see any reason why air to water heat pumps would be excluded. Mm -hmm. Less to pick from. Fewer contractors. There's very few who have actually done that work before Mm -hmm. and... um, and fewer who are willing to kind of go and do it on their first time. So we've quoted, we've looked at it for several clients and, you know, here in Virginia, for the most part, when we look at that option and most of these houses in Virginia, for instance, most of these houses still need a cooling system. Yeah. So you would need a separate, you know, separate system for cooling and dehumidification, Mm -hmm. which usually means, you know, some kind of forced air system as well. Sure. So you have these redundant distribution systems that, both cost money and, you know, you need to wind up installing both of those. Sure. Or you can just do it all with a single ducted mm-hmm. air-to-air heat pump system. For some of the older houses that have uh, radiators, we've actually gone in, just taken out the boiler, take out some of the, any of the radiators that the client wants to remove just mm-hmm. from an aesthetic standpoint and put in a whole new duct system with a heat pump. So everything is air-based. Is there any argument, and please, by all means, just shoot this down left and right like we're watching Top Gun here, but is there any argument for just saying, we're not doing that anymore, 
you're just going to put a mini duct in the rooms you want to have climate control in. Is that less work, more work? Does it make no sense at all? It's probably less work. Um, from a comfort standpoint, you know, the radiant heating, when done well with a, a low temperature uh, heat pump system, the comfort can be amazing mm-hmm. in the heating season, of course, because sure. you're not going to get um, much cooling out of it. Mm-hmm. And certainly you won't get any dehumidification out of it unless you want really wet floors. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. So fun. Water. It's great. Right. so great. It'll be interesting to see kind of what the typical solutions are. Yeah. Uh, in different places. There's tons of multifamily buildings in Philadelphia, New York City, throughout the Northeast that are boilers and radiators and window air conditioners. Like yeah. that's like super, super common. Sure. And the common retrofit is ductless heat pumps, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wall mount or other, you know, similar kinds of heat sure. pumps. Now there's there's additional products coming on the market where there's packaged through wall ductless heat pumps, there's heat pump window units now that are available. Gradient, I'm on the list. Yeah, so there's there's definitely other options. And I think trying to keep the hot water heat is, in a lot of cases, the more expensive option if okay. you also still have to deal with the cooling. And right. there's no doubt that, you know, we still have to deal with the cooling, the cooling sure. comfort, the dehumidification, yeah. and more and more locations in North America who could get by without cooling and dehumidification are going to need it either at least the cooling, or they're going to need um, dehumidification as well. Yep. Yeah, and that was my broader question, which is the the outcome is the same. The inputs are two different ones, which is in the Northeast and for a lot of the West, these folks right. have never yep. had air conditioning. Look at the Pacific Northwest, especially what's happening now. And again, Northeast, there's quite a bit of oil still there. But in the West, there's a lot of these places have nothing. Mm-hmm. They've got fans. Let's say we just kind of covered and such, but let's talk about in the West. If, you're, if you've got nothing, let's say you own your home, you own your duplex, whatever it might be. Obviously, this varies enormously, but where would you s- start with these things? Yeah, it really depends on what you're starting with. If you're starting with a boiler and radiators or whether you're starting with a gas, a ducted gas furnace or yeah. a lot of houses in uh, Washington state, for instance, just have electric resistance baseboard heat uh, because yeah. that was really encouraged to soak up a bunch of the excess nuclear that was built in the 70s and 80s. Sure, everything's fine. Yeah. Especially depends on, do you have duct work already? And okay. is that duct work in a good spot and in good shape? So okay. if you have ductwork, it's in a good location and it's in good shape to be reused, then a ducted heat pump is probably going to be the best strategy because then you can get comfort delivered all you know to all the different rooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't have that, if you don't have any ductwork, if you don't have any ductwork, then how hard is it to retrofit ductwork into sure. a good spot? And then kind of comparing that to going with the ductless heat pumps, mm-hmm. uh, the various options that are available in, in the ductless heat pumps. I think specifically about some of these places that are incredibly unaffordable out West, like Los Angeles. I mean, it's it's nearly impossible to buy a home. So let's imagine you're a renter and you don't can't affect the duct work, whether mm-hmm. you've got it or not. Right. And you've got an apartment or whatever it is. Are you going window units? And is there any sort of rebate for that? Like, what are these people looking at? Does it come down to the landlord? Like, what, what are the options? From a starting point, if you're a renter, I think the first question is who's paying the energy bills? If you're okay. paying if you're paying for your heat or if you're paying for your cooling, then maybe there's an incentive to do one of these like window unit heat pumps. And mm-hmm. that's something that is portable. You know, you can install sure. it's easy to install. 
uh, installs similarly to a window unit air conditioner. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. you can get that benefit of the lower energy bills uh, and the variable speed heating cooling output mm -hmm. for better comfort. Uh, right. And then when you move to a new apartment, you can take it with you. And okay. maybe at the same time, you can also have this conversation with the with the property owner and, mm -hmm. you know, start to hopefully push them in the right direction. You know, let them know, hey, there's these rebates. You've got right. 20 year old equipment across the board. Yeah. You're going to have to replace it. Don't you want, you know, uh, maybe, you know, make some improvements that are going to get you better occupancy? If you're, I mean, in some places, sure. there's so much, uh, unfortunately, there's so much demand for housing right now right. that the landlords are sitting pretty as far as this okay. stuff goes. They don't have a big yeah. incentive a to make power. big improvements, but hopefully sure. that'll change down the road and um, and we'll see property owners, uh, you know, being a little bit progressive, taking advantage of some of these rebate programs or maybe the green bank mm -hmm. financing to mm -hmm. uh, to make these changes. And of course, there's lots of states and localities that have additional incentives. So they have additional grants or rebates that you can layer on to these new uh, federal rebates that are and tax credits that are available through the IRA. Awesome. I think that's enough. Unless I've missed <laughs> any. Unless you're just like, you've totally forgot this part of your house. Um, it seems like we've covered most things usually we finish with action steps people can take that was that the, was the whole, this, this whole thing yeah. there's gonna that's the yeah. whole thing a lot of people don't realize it is that they are surrounded by heat pumps already even if you don't mm. have a, a heat pump for uh for heating and cooling heat pumps are everywhere they're just called different things your refrigerators is a heat pump if you have a window air conditioner that's a heat pump heat pumps just move heat from one place to another and they right they push heat or they pump heat across it's against its natural gradient. So just like water mm -hmm. wants to flow downhill and you can use a pump to pump water uphill, you can use a heat pump to pump heat uphill, to pump it right. from cold to hot. And that's all your air conditioner does. It pumps heat from inside your house and it sends it outside where it's already hot. Should we have renamed heat pumps before we passed Ira? Like, did we blow it? I'm against the, the heat pump renaming. I'm, I'm on records. Okay. I'm on record several you're, you're times TP on, pump. on okay. Twitter. Got it, yeah, got it, I got think it. Are right I'm, just, I'm just thinking of the people who are going to be like, I need air conditioning too. And I'm like, no, I know, but please listen to the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Your refrigerator, right. your freezer's a heat pump. Your car has a heat pump. Your uh, lots of different things. Okay. All heat pumps. Yeah. Some of them. So in the US uh, or in North America, a heat pump most commonly refers to something that can do heating and cooling at the same time. Sure. Uh, sure. In other countries, it's a little bit different. Sure. Yeah. Heat pumps are already ubiquitous. There's nothing new about them. There were something like 600 million compressors used for heat pump refrigeration systems of one kind or another uh, in the world last year. 600 million. That's it's, incredible. It's totally normal. Yeah. Well, hopefully we're shipping a bunch to more to Europe uh, here. Mm -hmm. This has been incredible. I have the last couple questions. I'm going to get you out of here. This has been like the whole day. I, I imagine you're going to take a very long nap after this. I really appreciate it. I think this is going to be so helpful to people going like, oh, shit, that. I had no idea. Thank you. Thank you. John, first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful, however you define that, when you were a kid with your team, with whatever me might be, family alone, when were you like, oh, shit, I can move the needle on something? I mean, definitely when I started my consulting business back in 2008, we saw right away that we could make uh, some pretty big, pretty big improvements in in people's lives that were um, kind of 
you know, revolutionary for them, creating a you know comfort, health, uh, energy experiences that lots of people just didn't really realize were possible, and and we could we were part of you know helping to make that possible. Thank you for sharing that. But I guess on that note, the one question I didn't ask that's unique here and I think is actually important for the legacy installers out there. Obviously, they need to start transitioning to to, to handling this line of business and mm-hmm. encouraging it more. What would you say to folks who sort of still have pushback uh, about this, who have decades and decades of, of contracts with air conditioning compressors and furnaces and things like that, and they've got the sheet they give you when you need to replace it because of an emergency and it's 95 degrees and they go, do you want this one or the more efficient or the most efficient? We'll be here Wednesday. Yep. I mean, hey, I get the business model around emergency replacements. It's challenging to do an electrification on an emergency basis. That's something that we, as a company, we rarely do um, because it's challenging. Uh, Almost all of our stuff is planned out. So um, I think, you know, to the extent that uh, contractors are able to get into the business of helping their clients think uh, more thoughtfully and holistically about their homes, about their indoor health, about their comfort, uh, and about and about energy, and think about that stuff up front, they're more likely to, you know, gain a client for the long haul than just doing emergency replacements. And that's a big opportunity to, uh, you know, do the, uh, you know, do the heat pump swap out, but a lot of these contractors also do plumbing. They also do electrical. A lot of them, sure. especially the bigger ones, they're you know combo sure. contractors. So that's an opportunity right. to not just be in there you know one time for the heat pump, but to do a whole big package all at once and utilize you know multiple divisions from your company to do some big projects. Uh, and so that's I think that's a good selling point as well. So that's the carrot. The stick is that if they don't, there's going to be more and more folks like us who are getting out ahead. And yeah. eliminating the emergency replacements and switching mm-hmm. people over to heat pumps, and then once they're switched over and they're happy, they're not going to go back to the other contractors. So that's you know it's you know so that's the stick is kind of getting the game because sure. the game is changing. Sure, sure. I might have to ask you at some point to send me. I feel like that's one place maybe I'm lacking is some information or resources for installers to sort of what is the good word to to help them most robustly sell them on starting to turn over their business towards this as opposed to we've told all the consumers hey here's your calculator here's where to go here's where to get find out your rebates if you've got like hey this is the place to find out the real gospel yeah there's good resources in uh in in California to get people started Nate Adams with HVAC 2.0 is trying to build kind of a nationwide mm-hmm. network of folks trying to kind of revamp how HVAC is done electrification becomes a kind of a natural Mm-hmm. outcome uh so it's not a selling point but it's it it becomes kind of just something that's done naturally because it results sure. in uh well better results uh better comfort better better health lower energy bills for a lot of people yeah i'll send you yeah a few that would be great too. i 100 watch those youtube videos by the way it's a delight john who is someone in your life uh that has positively impacted your work in the past six months i'm on twitter a good bit uh following a lot of energy and climate Twitter Mm -hmm. folks. So I think definitely Dr. Leah Stokes is a big one. And another one who on Twitter is just now kind of starting to post more 
um, because she was, I think, doing some government work for a while. Uh, but uh, uh, Dr. Emily sure. Gruber, who's now at Notre Dame, she's always posting great stuff. Or not always, but when she mm-hmm. does, great awesome. stuff. Awesome. We will put them in the show notes. And lastly, because you have so much time on your hands, uh, a book you've read this year recently that's opened your mind uh, to a topic you hadn't considered before or has changed your thinking in some way. We've got a whole list that we share with folks. Definitely the All We Can Save book is um, is fantastic. Sure. There's just so many different perspectives. That's something that I I try to do in who I follow on Twitter, kind of my my Twitter, my curated Twitter experiences, mm-hmm. follow folks who are outside my regular realm. Uh, and the All We Can Save book has uh, definitely helped get those different perspectives uh, on uh, on global warming, on on climate change, on on equity sure. and justice. Yeah, they did a tremendous job with that book. It's it's pretty beautiful. That's it. You've been here all day. Congratulations and thank you. You survived. Thank you. It's been oh, great. Oh gosh, Quinn. you're a hero. I I think this is really going to help people go like, oh, and then they're going to walk into their laundry room in their kitchen and go, that thing's not great. And they'll understand it a little better. Again, folks, we're going to give you all the tools that we've got. And of course, we'll update those as they go along. Yeah. John, where can our listeners follow you online, find your crew? Sure. Yeah. So they can find our business at www.comfortsquad.us. And they can find me on Twitter at John Semelhack and at Comfort Squad VA. Awesome. Well, I'm so thankful for you spending the time doing this and uh, and and taking my house of hard soup to nuts. It's it's overdue, but I'm I'm giddy with excitement to to take it on and nerd out on it all. So I promise fewer questions as we continue. Oh, keep them keep them coming, Quinn. Careful what you ask for. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the show. A reminder, you can send feedback or questions about this episode or some guest recommendations to me at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Links to anything we talked about today are in your show notes in your podcast player. If you want to rep any or your shit giver status, you can find sustainable t-shirts, hoodies, and a variety of coffee delivery vessels in our store at importantnotimportant.com slash store. You can subscribe to our critically acclaimed weekly newsletter for free at newsletter.importantnotimportant.com. Our theme music was composed by Tim Blaine. The show was edited by Anthony Luciani. And the whole episode was produced by Willow Beck. We'll see you next time.